Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, open our ears and our hearts and minds today to hear your word and be comforted by your promises of eternal life and forgiveness. Be with those who could not be here today. We thank you for the Gideons uh, to share their message today. Knowing that the word of God is spread all over the world, people need to hear it, Lord. Help us to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you, gliding, wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or a woman, but who is that on the other side of you? That's an excerpt from the poem, The Wasteland, by T.S. Eliot. Eliot was inspired by Ernst Shackleton's 1917 Antarctic expedition, in which Shackleton and two other men endured a 36-hour march over mountains and glaciers to reach safety. Shackleton wrote that at the time he could have sworn there were four of them when there were actually only three. When he wrote about this, other explorers and survivors came forth claiming to have had similar experiences under extreme hardship. This phenomenon has, has come to be known as third man syndrome. And it seems to happen mostly to polar explorers, mountain climbers, and people stranded on the high seas. It can happen to one person, it can happen to two or three, but in each case the person either hears the voice of an additional member of the group or they see someone they don't know. Psychologists think it might be a, a cultivated inner character which lends imagined inner support and comfort. You know, a kind of uh, coping mechanism when you're in a dire situation. Uh, some Bible critics claim that the third man syndrome is what the two men on the road to Emmaus experienced. Which is interesting because <clears throat> if you're going to be critical of the Bible, how does one pick and choose what really happened or who is real and who isn't? You know, if you're going to say it wasn't really Jesus on the road that day, then that those two men just needed comfort so their inner coping mechanism came on and invented Jesus. Well, who's to say then that the two men on the road of, to Emmaus weren't fictional? You know, maybe Jesus was the one who was alone on the road and he needed companionship and therefore experienced the third man syndrome. Ah, you know, you and I know there was no syndrome that day. Jesus walked out of the tomb. It's a credible account. We even have the name of one of the men. You know, for a while after it happened, you know, if anyone doubted that Jesus was alive and appeared on the road outside Jerusalem, you could say, well, go ask Cleopas. He still lives in Emmaus. He's Go ask him. He'll tell you. Believability is the thing for people today. The quality of something being convincing or realistic is ever more important today with so many fake videos and fake news going around. Not that that's a new thing. 
It's just that there's a lot more of it being produced today for entertainment and just sometimes it's malicious. But there's a lot more of it than there was 20, even 10 years ago. Now, one video I watched the other day, however, which didn't look fake to me or contrived, was of a university professor arguing with a group of young atheists on the street in some city. And uh, he was arguing for the reliability of the witnesses, Matthew, John, Peter, James, and a few of the others who were martyred. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, yes, but don't forget Cleopas and that other guy on the road. They are also witnesses to the resurrection. That night, they go to where Peter is, and they corroborate their stories. You know, they give support to their accounts that Peter saw the empty tomb that morning, and the two men on the road saw Jesus a little while later outside the city. As we will hear later on as the church year progresses, Peter and the rest are going to show everyone, including you and me today, that you don't die for a lie. Well, some do, like the Branch Davidians or the Heaven's Gate cult. They died for a liar. What I mean is the apostles aren't going to put their lives on the line and die, as in Peter's case, for a made-up story just to fit their agenda or start a new religion and so forth. You know, that was one of the arguments by one of these young atheists in this video I mentioned. You know, this young man claims that people made up the story about Jesus in order to start their own religion. Really. Start your own religion. In a city and in an environment where if you're not what most everybody else is, a Jew, then nothing else is going to be tolerated. I mean, you can be a visitor with a different belief and stay for a little while and do business, whatever. But, you know, you'll be asked to move along, move along. And if you're a Gentile, like a Roman citizen, then you'd better be worshiping Caesar or it's death to you. Yeah, the starting one's own religion in early first century Jerusalem, I mean, that argument doesn't float. Besides, the scriptures already speak to this. Who was it? Gamaliel, the one of the Pharisees, he said, many people have come claiming to be a prophet or somebody great, and, and they die, and their followers scatter, and it all comes to nothing. If that's what Jesus is, somebody claiming to be somebody, but is really nothing, then nothing will come of it. Well, here you and I are today, along with millions of other Christians throughout these last almost 2,000 years. Apparently, Jesus was somebody. <laughs> we all took an oath, you know, in our confirmation days that we would be like the apostles who were martyred rather than fall away from Jesus or deny Him. You wouldn't even say you'd do that for a lie. All that happened in Jerusalem regarding the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth the report from the women who went to the tomb, the dead rising to life, all that was according to God's purpose to redeem you and me from sin. Which for a time was a barrier between us and God. Peter was part of this purpose. He followed Jesus, he believed in him, he denied him but repented, continued following him despite the threat of death 
from the day Jesus walked out of the tomb. Likewise, Peter writes this letter and another one to Christians assuring them that saving grace has been won for you by God's own Son. This is the promise we've had now for two millennia. Now, we can't even keep a promise for a week, let alone 20 centuries. We humans promise not to treat each other badly or kill each other, then turn around and do it anyway. Because of sin, we should conduct ourselves with fear of God's judgment, as Peter says in verse 17 of our epistle. Why would we want to fear the Lord, though? Is He not our Savior? Does He not love us? Is He going to allow us into His presence only if we tremble with fear? You know, we often use the word respect to convey the idea that the fear of God means we love Him, we are in awe of Him, and so we don't want to disrespect Him or even anger Him. We must keep in mind also that Peter calls us Christians to conduct ourselves with fear because God will discipline His children for our sake. We're to be wary of those things which would bring God's discipline. You know, some people who have experienced hardships have asked me, Pastor, is God disciplining me for something I've done wrong against Him? My answer is, it could be. It could also be unfortunate circumstances which may have happened anyway. We can't always know exactly. Nevertheless, trust in God. That's what He wants. And back to the fear factor, Peter uses the word Phobos in the Greek for fear. Phobos means to, to flee or withdraw. You know, it's where we get our English word phobia from. You know, you have a phobia of something, you know, you want to flee from it or withdraw from it. Well, we're certainly to cling to Jesus for all good things and withdraw from the bad. As God's children, we fear Him by withdrawing from those things that replace Him in our heart and mind as God. Whatever it may be, TV, screen, the bottle, celebrities, politicians, the, the list can go on. And the TV is no unrealistic example either, if that's what you're thinking. Oh, come on, the TV? Look, I'll never forget a story someone's, uh, of someone's late husband. She told me, her husband would come home from work. This for 30 years, he would come home from work. The first thing he would do when he got in the door before he even said hello to her or the kids was plop his butt down in the seat and turn on the TV, and that's where he would be till 10 o'clock at night. Can you imagine? Apparently, that was his God. <laughs> you know. Now, we're not to be fearful of those things in themselves, although some are very destructive to the body and mind. We're fearful of what they will do to our relationship with God. It's all the more reason to thank Him for having you in mind since before the world began. Before He made the first people, He knew He would send His Son to be true man and true God for you, to die for you, redeem you, bring you to faith in what He has done for you and promises to do. So, without the trembling kind of fear... We live in the freedom, the joy, and peace of the resurrection of Jesus. 
and our resurrection as well on the last day. If there is something to the third man syndrome, let it be for you more than just a phenomena. Let it be Jesus who walks with you, speaks to you words of comfort and encouragement. I love you as my dear child. I forgive all your sins and I give you life forever. Amen.